0: Constantly move forward. There's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student educator or in the workforce now here's dave goldberg
1: and good day and welcome to big beacon radio Transforming Higher Education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and BigBeacon.org is an independent nonprofit organized in 2012 to help transform higher education, particularly engineering and professional education. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us, and you can tweet about the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show on Twitter at hashtag uh, BigBeacon. And today we're um, uh, fortunate to to be joined by uh, David Silverberg from Mashland University. Welcome to the show, David. Well, thanks. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And and we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about a couple of books that you've edited. But you're you director of the Toledo Center for Educational Improvement. You're editor of, of two books on high, on change in higher ed. Uh, been a faculty member and and uh, a PhD in education. But let's go back in the time machine. What what were some of the early influences that put you on your current path?
2: Well, as far as the changing the light bulb theme that runs through the books, uh, so when I was growing up, my brother was an aspiring electrician, and he taught me how to change light bulbs from an early age, okay. and he also taught me how to, uh, he, he would electrocute me by putting wires through the door handle to my bedroom, so I learned about the power of electricity and change early. Oh my. But professionally speaking, you know, I, I just, in my years in higher education, in my years in K-12, it just seemed to me that these are institutions that should be nimble and should be proactive and not just responsive, but proactive. And so some of the things that I've seen in my 12 years at Ashland University, especially recently, uh, have really helped inspire me about what's possible as far as institutional transformation. So that, those are some things that inspired me. Hmm.
1: Okay. And, and in terms of uh, early influences, what led you to uh, – what led you to uh, – Get into higher ed. What led you to get a, a PhD? What led you into your current into your current line of work? Back sure, way, yeah. way back when. Well, I
2: started teaching. Uh, gosh, I started teaching in 1990, and about two or three years after that, teaching in K-12. Mm. About two or three years after that, I started working in professional development, to help teachers get better because I saw for beginning teachers they were struggling. And uh, then after many years of teaching and doing professional development, I realized that, you know, higher ed is a place where we can really help people train and then continue to evolve to become better educators in the field as a whole. And that's why I got my doctorate and was full time in the College of Education, master's and undergraduate degrees for six, seven years. And then now been about five years uh, really focusing full time on outreach to school districts around the state.
1: Yeah, now and. Now that that's helpful to understand where where your interests come from actually I'm curious about you know, so, so and, and I we'll get a chance maybe to talk about we're gonna I think we're going to talk a lot about higher ed and uh, in, in a number of our segments but I, I want to circle back to your experiences in k12 and both uh, how your interviews inform those and how your work in k-12 inform how you you think about change but uh, also on the show uh, the show grows out of um, some work in bringing about change in higher ed, particularly engineering education, and, which was uh, documented in a book that Mark Somerville and I wrote called A Whole New Engineer. And in that book, we, we, um, we center on the need, especially in creative times like ours for what we called unleashing experiences. That is experiences where someone either trusted us or we trusted ourselves to then have the courage to do something that was uh, that was frankly hard to do or that we were afraid to do. And so I'm curious uh, uh, what experiences or individuals have helped give you the courage to go your own way in your
2: life. Sure, yeah. Well, there are a couple of people at, at Ashland University in particular that have helped me with this because in K-12 and in, in higher ed, as you know, certainly – yeah. Can be pretty uh, traditional structures, and so my boss, uh, Dr. Gene Linton, is the dean of the Founder School of Education at Ashland University, and then the associate provost at the university, Dr. T- Todd Marshall. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate them in them is the way they talk about not just the next thing to do but about really thinking about how we can make change happen in a bigger way. It's not just the next topic or the next task. So when I heard that that's where they were speaking from, the light bulb went on for me about, you know what, I can be part of those kinds of things too. Um, so in a sense, that was an unleashing experience. Those were unleashing experiences, conversations that I've had with them over the years.
1: Yeah. And, um, okay. And so, um you're, and so you're director of something called the Toledo Center for Educational Improvement. What, What's the Toledo Center about? What's your role there? Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, the work of, of your center.
2: Sure, yeah. Well, uh, we do outreach to school districts across the state as far as professional development, Um, We've conducted over 20 curriculum audits of school districts, so that's K-12 for math, science, English, language, arts, and social studies. Uh, We also put on professional development programs for school administrators. We have one that's been going on for 17 years for superintendents and curriculum directors and such, and lots of uh, customized PD, professional development for teachers in different areas. uh, and so that's a lot of the work that we do is outreach in that regard, and it's pretty innovative stuff, I think.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I, and I don't know, I, I don't know the K twelve landscape. Um, I, I actually there's a dearth of PD in higher ed. Uh, you look around, there are very few schools that. I, I guess there's uh, nowadays. It's a commonplace to. Um, to have some sort of training and pedagogy, uh, and teaching methods, and so forth for entering teachers, which you know, which wasn't the case, say twenty, twenty-five years ago. So there's some some development, but it's um, um, seems to me that it's fairly limited with respect to the some of the things that I hear going on in K twelve. What uh, w- when you say uh, the the PD that you're involved in is innovative? What does that mean?
2: Well, you know, you hear lots of things about standards and such, and and um, achievement and so forth, and yep. assessment. And uh, it's amazing how often people work so hard, uh, and certainly are bright people working hard, and yet also in some ways are just working harder at doing the same things. Right. Uh, and so through these curriculum audits that we do, we really meet with the teachers and find out exactly what it is that they're teaching and to what degree, and then come out with an 85-page report or so about this just articulating. What I call the vertical alignment, so that K twelve flow through of what you think about STEM topics or otherwise, um, that show what and where things are being taught, and it's extraordinary when how that illustrates where the gaps might be. You know, you think about. Uh, spinal column and you know if a vertebrae is out of place that's a big deal and in education obviously people can't get to college or or beyond um, with a solid education unless there's some reasonable flow through there and and uh, a lot of times these things are just because people are focused on the next kid to help which of course is critical and not on exactly what you know uh, should be taught in terms of the flow okay so um so that's that
1: that's helpful and and um, uh, now let's talk a little bit about these uh, uh, two books that um, um, you've edited here that, and they've come out this year uh, 2018 um, one is called Empowerment at the Tower uh, with the subtitle Leadership and Identity in Higher Education and the um, the second one is called in- institutional change from within with the subtitle teaching and learning in higher education yeah, you you um we're going to dig into them in, in um in some detail uh one in each of our remaining segments but um i'm always interested when i have book authors on the show show i've written books myself it's a big job and um and, and it usually takes a while to do, and uh there's usually got to be something that triggers it that makes it important enough to take on a big job in the the flow of of everyday stuff and so what was it that uh triggered or inspired you to um, to tackle this project?
2: Oh boy, I knew you were going to ask that i can the best I can tell you is I felt inspired you know i've got i've got yep. a good nose for um, possibility. Yeah. And uh, it struck me that these, this, I intended it as being maybe, who knew if anybody would submit anything that would give me mm-hmm. enough for one book. Right. And I put out some feelers uh, just thinking this was an idea that, gosh, transformation in higher ed, that's kind of an important topic. And I got such a rush of response with people that would be interested to share that it ended up being two books. So you talk about, can take a while to do. I did both of these in a year. Yep. And I called them sister texts. Um, so it was kind of an inspiration. And to be honest, Dave, I didn't know where they were going to lead me. It was just an inquiry into what's going on out there. So uh, I was curious, and, and uh, this, is, this is
0: what, what resulted.
1: So that's interesting. So, so there is a process here. So you put out a call for call for papers or a call for interviews. Uh, how did you it was an interestingly ec- eclectic group that you had in both books. I'm just uh, so how did how did you solicit the um, uh, the folks that you ended up getting?
2: Oh boy, good question. Yeah, I uh all kinds of ways. I mean I blasted it out through, you know, the universities, colleges and universities that I had gone to through alumni yep. and friends. Yep. yep. Um, others that were doing interesting work in the field. It was kind of an all call at an industrial level. Yep. And um because I, who knew, I didn't know if anybody would even respond, and some of the responses were fascinating. Which is something along the lines of some some universities wrote to me and said they'd be happy to submit a chapter as long as they could only say good things about themselves. And I said, well, no, you know that's not what this is about. It's about really sharing what's going on. What are the challenges? How'd you overcome them? You know, otherwise, that's it's not a learning instrument, is it? And they said, well, we're not interested. So there were, it was just fascinating to see. And one person, one uh, high-level administrator at an institution, uh, offered to submit a paper and was very excited, a chapter rather. And this, this person was nixed by the, the, the highest-level administrators at the university because it was authentic. You know, it was talking about challenges and, and you know, overcoming them <laughs> and so forth. And they were worried that they'd be seen as um, critical are insecure, which is funny because obviously they are. You know, so uh, here we are with some you know bold statements coming from across the country that I'm proud to share. And yeah, to be so honest, that's when you that's, talk about uh, interviews. Yeah. I didn't even know I was going to be doing interviews until I read the chapters and thought, "There's a whole backstory here behind, kind of like that. Um, what did you call it? Unleashing." Yeah, behind and underneath the unleashing experiences are frankly my favorite parts of the books. Is where where the yep. uh, uh, I did the interviews and people shared about their lives. Like, why do they? How do they become change agents? To me, is honestly the biggest. Now I'm jumping to the end here, but I really think is the most valuable aspect of the book because that's where change is going to happen. Is when people realize. I look back on how they, in fact, became agents of change, how they learned that as a life lesson, and suddenly institutions around the country can start to see pretty dramatic change, I think.
1: That's, and I find that interesting as well, and of course, uh, uh, I applaud your efforts to get authentic. Uh, the world doesn't need any more marketing pieces from um, universities about how great they are and how everything they're doing is is working, and change is hard. And there's still quite a lot to quite a lot to learn, and uh, uh, and a lot of what's out there um, uh, is of is of questionable value, or is tuned to a different time, in my view. A, a lot of what constituted effective change in the '50s, '60s, '70s, and '80s is a lot different than what's effective change in the in in the. Uh, Era of the Internet comment.
2: Mm-hmm. And what I would offer is, and what I've learned through this, just kind of coming out of it, is that really the ultimate source of change is not stuff, it's not technology stuff, it's not more money, it's not you know, yep. great ideas even. Yep. It's people recalling when and how they learned to, to uh, I don't embrace or, or overcome tran- change challenges. Yes. individuals or you know what one what one chapter author in the book describes as nodes in the network where somebody says you know what i know how to be resilient and make this change happen and it's boom it's amazing that's the spark that's it right there yeah and well and that, that
1: no yet. that's yeah that's <laughs> it and that, and that resonates with uh, the point of view that we took in a whole new engineer looking at olin college at little david small uh startup school versus uh the university of illinois goliath um uh, you know uh, going back to the 1860s and and trying to figure out how to bring engineering education into this century so the and and that that and which which really raises um and actually we we start the show by asking people about these unleashing experiences and use the word courage intentionally Um, and actually it it took some courage to use the word courage. Um, We actually, (laughs) it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to use emotional language or language that is um, uh, about affect Uh, and uh, in in a culture that values reason over all else. And so the, I'm glad to, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, to hear that perspective. Now, I, I need to you you, you started the, the show by talking about the light bulb and I, I found it very interesting that there was an electrocution story behind it. But, um, <laughs> but, but, uh, in, in the book, in, in the books, you use the, um, the old joke, um, and I, the version I remember is how many Californians does it take to change a light bulb? You change that into how many academics does it ch- mm-hmm. take to change a light bulb, and ask that as a as kind of a conversation starter or opener. What uh, so we, yeah. your brother, and and being elect and being shocked, uh, and and light bulbs and so forth is the physical manifestation of that. But what was it that, that got you to use that uh, or change that old joke into an opener?
2: Well, I couldn't use the California reference because I'm from California, and that would hurt too much. So don't yep. go there. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that was intentional. Uh, you know, by really, I. the reason that, that the reason that I got that it's that that came forward for me was yep. that in higher education we just think of it as being so slow moving, and and actually in other industries as well to transform. And so I thought I thought it was kind of a, I know tickled my fancy to think about the notion of what if we ask that question literally. How many engineers does it take to, you know, blah, blah, blah. How many um, professors does it take to make real change? What if we took that literally and literally asked people, and when I have the, you know, the president of Wesleyan University cracking up on the phone because I'm asking him, you know, how many academics does it take to change a light bulb? And he says, you really want to know? I said, yeah, I really want to know. And uh, because... These are, at some level, this is where real, real changes happen, isn't it? It's when real people de- decide to change real institutions. So, how many does it take? And what I found was remarkably few. Because yes. both in the self reporting, when I asked people how many does it take, and I'm really asking the question, um, most of their answers were something like one. One person even said zero. Um, or somebody said, you know, two or three, you know, these kinds of answers. And then in their own uh, chapters, they would describe one or two people making, you know, being kind of the cause of significant changes. So um, I don't know. It's just uh, something about making a, a funny question like that real made it even funnier and even more real.
1: And I and I love that. And it is a seri- it is a serious uh, question. And the the social organization of change efforts varies, as it as we saw, as 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 the uh, case studies um, I think eleven case studies in the two book point out. There there is variation in in that, but usually it is a small, dedicated, and aligned group of of uh, of change agents that have. Uh, different ideas about what to to bring forward. But that, anyways, that's, that's really interesting. Let's, I think we need to take a little bit of a break right now. And um, when we, um, when we come back, let's, uh, let's jump into uh, Empowerment at the Tower. How's that sound? Sounds great. All right. So this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, uh, David Silverberg from Ashland University. Stay stay tuned. And uh, the next uh, segment we're going to we're gonna we're gonna talk about leadership in in higher education and how to bring about transformative change.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. visit Facebook.com dot forward slash voice America
0: you want greater success in bringing change to your university college department or classroom are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change would you like to boost your own academic business or technical career let david e goldberg of three joy associates help David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645, contact him at deg at 3joy.com, or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fifty-seven ninety. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show.
1: And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. I'm Dave Goldberg, and uh, the second segment is sponsored by Three Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change mastery facilitation to help transform yourself or your educational organization or institution. And keep an eye open for the forthcoming Change Masters Coaching Club, a monthly subscription to work on the five shifts of change. And we're back with uh, uh, David Silverberg from Ashland University. And, uh, David, we were talking about light bulbs and electrocution and and uh, uh, change in higher education. And and I want to, in this segment, uh, turn to your um your book uh the one of the sisters empowerment at the tower and uh, how would you and and so you you got these different submissions and you organized them um into two different volumes how would you describe the collection of papers uh, and interviews in uh, empowerment at the tower
2: well yeah i think i feel like these uh six chapters uh really address those issues of, of leadership and, and identity, um, universities that are making shifts in that way, yep. focusing on issues of who they are and how they, how they lead. Uh, and that just seemed to be a make-sense package, if you will. Um, an institutional change from within, those, those five universities really seemed to um, circle a bit more on issues of uh, teaching and learning. So that seemed like a good, collect, good way to collect those.
1: Okay, and so um uh you've, as you mentioned, there are six papers in the volume um and and this is maybe a little unfair because uh you don't want to um, um discriminate against uh, some of your authors, but there were probably one or two of these that really uh Flipped your pizza, uh, kind of really said, "Oh, this is this is what uh, transformation in higher education." You actually use the should word before should be about. Um, uh, If if we've got limited time, which one or two do you want to sort of point at and highlight?
2: Yeah, that was painful because uh, you know they're all you know how it is—you get attached to all of them in different ways. But I think as far as illustrating. some key points, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, the, tra- the uh, transformation of internationalization that went on at uh, College of William and Mary in Virginia and then also um, the Homeland Security program that was developed there at Rio Hondo College in California.
1: Okay and what is it, uh, um, maybe uh, start with the internationalization, what is it about that that's sort of
2: exemplary, exemplary or sticks out in your mind? Well, I mean, I think what's really interesting about what happened there. I mean, two things. Uh, one is certainly the the um, the nature of what happened at the institution there. But uh, you know, also too, I don't want to get too far afield of what I think is really the the joy of the book, and that is why people how people became transformers. Um, and uh, but as far as themes that came out of that, that I think were really helpful. Uh, certainly that people there really learned how to focus on um, purpose, I mean there was just some powerful purposing there, it's just really one of the, it's the oldest institution in the country and uh, for higher education and it always has had an international orientation, but it was pretty much disseminated across the university and it was not centralized and they decided they really wanted to centralize it. So that's kind of a big endeavor. Um, but ultimately, what they learned was that the best way to transform that transform that word through what they were calling you know nodes in the network and individuals that were going to be part of that change, uh, instigators of that change, um, leveraged what they wanted out of that, and it, and it came up with some good results. So I think that's why that's a good example. Um, there was some administrative leadership in that capacity, of course, but also some more faculty types were involved with that as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, that, yeah. Go on. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that was interesting about that effort is that they explicitly, and we've had John Cotter on the show before, actually a couple of times, and so they were fairly intentional um, about uh, change methodology, and they called out uh, Cotter's uh, eight-step processes and actually used that as an organizing uh, principle for for their work. How important. Uh, do you think that their being intentional about how they changed was for their success or what they achieved? Well,
2: that's a really interesting reference because it was only after doing the chapter that uh, the administrator there on campus looked at that and said, my gosh, this follows that, 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 that organization, that strategy, beautifully. So it was a wonderful match. Uh, it was a, it was a theory that was familiar with people there, but that's the way that this uh, initiative took place. In part, was was organic, and yet it also mirrored that practice. So it was really I, kind of a neat twist for them.
1: I, mean, I see. It really
2: did mirror it to the to the. To the key i mean it really was on point with that and was very helpful for them and one of the big takeaways of advice for them with others that i would just share back to you is they really felt strongly that people should have an organizing theory organizing change theory that helps them structure their efforts and you know and measure outcomes and so forth too well and on this show
1: we've we talk about change process, both, uh, for individuals through oftentimes through a coaching or mentoring lens. And then for organizations, oftentimes through some sort of, um, you know, we've had, we've had people like Dan Heath on the show and John Cotter and other, other people talking about, you know, uh, how change is made, you know, usually those, um, usually the references and usually the places these things are done are, are not, um, in higher education, so much there, there's less intentionality around process uh, in change efforts. It's, I think, people assume that their ordinary process of calling a committee together and doing things the old-fashioned way will work. Uh, my experience is that that the old-fashioned way gets you the kind of incremental change that was uh, effective uh, in the past, not what's needed now. Comment.
2: Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And, and they jumped right into that. I, I agree. I think that this is, and I think that the time is right. I mean, I think that for a lot of these institutions that I spoke with, you know, this is people are feeling that change is necessary um, and it's still scary. You know, if change yeah. can be challenging yeah. for the institution and to individuals. Um, but I think timing is key, and I think the time, a lot of people are feeling that the time is now. They're just looking for how. And what? And you've called
1: out a number of interesting things from the internationalization example in chapter five. But um, what else? We're going to we'll shift to the uh, uh, new home security department uh, chapter that you you mentioned uh, among the the two that were exemplary. And what else should we say about the internationalization effort before moving on?
2: Yeah, you know, I just, it comes back to me to people, too. You know, I mean, we have uh, a couple administrators there that talked about part of the way they learned how to be change agents was they grew up in, you know, families with bunches of siblings, and they had to learn how to speak their voice and lead others. And it's so interesting how, you know, we we think we're so higher-minded, and we are, and yet so much of our learning starts from at the beginning. Um, and so, uh, so that was really fascinating to me. And then also, too, uh, Dr. Steve Hansen, the Vice Provost there of International Affairs, uh, talked a bit about growing up um, in Berkeley and you know, what it was like to learn about um, other cultures around the world and that was just such a significant influence as far as understanding both the international piece, but also learning how to kind of get along and listen and what's possible out there. So, again, early formation, you know, kind of these early formation stories I thought were just fascinating and, frankly, surprising to a lot of them during the interviews that, that um, the, the kind of the power behind those, the, the influence of those.
1: Yeah, well, and one of the tenets, or if there are tenets of the show, is is the role of story and how important story is, and and I I, I love that you've called out and noticed um, the centrality of uh, people uh, and their own their own change stories in the making of a of a change agent or a change master. It seems to me that that's the case. And usually there are stories like that, but sometimes those aren't the preeminent stories in our life. And sometimes just finding those and getting people to think about those times where they have, they have been in, in change has, is, uh, is helpful to getting, getting more change and, and awakening the change master within mm-hmm. Comment
2: Well, and think about, talk about courage. I didn't know any of these people. And yep. I'm on the phone with them across the country at, yep. you know, different hours because of time change and so forth and whatever. And then I don't know them at all. And they've written these, you know, academic articles professing their pro- professional experiences and so forth. They're not necessarily personally revealing unless they chose to talk about that. Most of them, you know, really were writing about how they change stuff at the university, culture, yep. mindset, et cetera, programs. And then I come out with this question of, so, you know, Tell me about what in your life led to being a change agent. And honestly, I didn't quite know I was going to ask that question until it just seemed like the right question to ask. And yeah. it was amazing. And people were practically there. Were several people who were in tears, you know. And here I'm yeah. thinking, oh my gosh, what have I done? But that just meant I think something. You know, there was some meaning. There's some real value there, um, as far as hopefully keeping them inspired and then you know lighting the flame in others as well.
1: Beautiful, yeah, and uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, one of the joys of, uh, of of being a coach, being an executive coach or leadership coach, is is being given permission to to ask those questions and sit with people as they work through their own answers and and uh, find find their sweet spots and find. The parts that were authentic, and so um, I, I'm resonating with the the beauty of of your interviews. So, chapter three, homeland security as an emerging academic discipline, was the other other one you mentioned. What uh, um, what what uh, got you excited about that one? What why call that one out?
2: Well, I I think there's some interesting elements of that. Um, And some of these themes were, took place in other, you could see them in other chapters as well, which was interesting why they came out in themes. But one piece of this was, you know, what I would call embracing dissonance. You know, Mm. these, these, uh, these leaders so Dr. Nash Flores who's the dean of public safety there Rick uh Tracy Rickman as uh, coordinator of of uh, fire safety and Dr. Don Mason there associate dean of public safety they jumped right into trying to create these programs and facilities in a way that was very um I would say selfless you know they really they part of their message part of their advice is uh, embrace your enemies and what they mean by that is when you're moving into a collaborative group effort with different entities uh different political or social entities bring them in just because they are the people that need to be part of the project even if there are professional or ego clashes and so forth get over it and move on to what's really valuable and i think that's a valuable lesson for many of us in higher education where things of course you know people talk about silos and egos and tenure and all these kinds of things can get in the way of getting stuff done and um So I thought they really stood for that and and, and believed in that. I thought that was pretty neat. Um, And I also think one of the other messages that came out from them, and then I'll talk a little bit about just the personal stories too, was they shared about the value of authenticity, of really getting to know the people that work with them and for them at a genuine level, not just, you know, I know this person's going to be on the committee, but really asking about their family lives and getting to know them personally because not only does that build sympathy and empathy, but it also builds uh, trust so when things get hard, we don't just drop the ball on progress, which we all know in higher ed can happen quite easily. So uh, those are just a couple things that I thought were really neat as far as uh, takeaways and, and value points.
1: Yeah, that's so, uh, you know, those are both points are um, interesting. We've had, um, oh, uh, there, uh, Zaid Hassan wrote a book called The Social Labs uh, Revolution, where explicitly you bring opposing uh, Points of view. Uh, the we had uh, Adam Kahane on the show as well, uh, not that long ago, where we, he was talking about uh, bringing opposing points of view together in South Africa during the era of apartheid. So, you know, they're extreme examples of uh, um, of of bringing your enemy in, and and uh, and and learning to converse and learning uh, trying to form some basis for trusting. Uh, and going forward. So that, this is an interesting um, uh, case in that way. Uh, you mentioned that there are some of the personal, um, you mentioned authenticity and some of the personal stories. We've got a couple of minutes left in the segment. What uh, what should we talk about
2: sure. there? Sure. Yeah. Well, Nash, Nash talked about growing up being a minority and how this mm. affected his life just as far as learning uh, resilience. He didn't say the word resilience, but it certainly was, you know, kind of comes out of what he described. Yep. And, um, I think also for him, what I really picked up from that was humility. You know, he said so many people are out there for their ego or getting their name, done, getting their name out there, or celebrity of some kind or another, fame and success and whatnot. And then really the, the real work is about doing the work and making a difference, not about the other stuff. Uh, and then also, too... Um, uh, Don Mason, Dr. Don Mason, talked about growing up poor and people telling him as a young person growing up in, uh, in, in a tough part of Los Angeles that, hey, he wasn't going to amount to much. And he decided as a young person that he was yep. <laughs> and, and that he was not going to have anybody tell him he couldn't. And here he is leading major, significant, important work and uh, just kind of the pride, uh, the humble pride that comes from that. And I think those are both—they're both good role models in that way. And and by the way, and I know we're transitioning to a break here, but I will say that those kinds of themes, growing up with challenges, help form a lot of these chapter authors, which is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Well, and,
1: and yeah, and that. Anyways, thanks for sharing both of those uh, stories, and I I agree that 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 it is um, it is those challenges and uh, overcoming them and uh, uh stepping into into difficult stuff that is uh um, is central to um, well central to being able to stand up and say Hey, things need to be be different and being willing to listen to the the system resonate for a while while it's kind of the same old thing.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think as far as helping people get there, we have to feel them, help them feel a sense of comfort and trust so that they can feel vulnerable enough to be real yeah. about how they yeah. became the change agent that they can become. Um, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, it does. Uh, often we talk a lot on the show about vulnerability, uh, um, talk a lot about Brene Brown's work uh, in perfection and uh, power of vulnerability and things like that. And so it just seems like, uh, and actually, this this points out um, um, something that um, I think is central: that that these these change efforts are fundamentally not what we think they are. And and some of your and some of your writers framed the their, what they did in traditional ways. They said, "Well, we're changing a curriculum, or we're changing content, or we're changing pedag- pedagogy." But at root, they're fundamentally um, they're fundamentally at a, a level of individuals, they're, they're emotional journeys, um, journey, journeys of courage, and at the level of organizations, they're cultural uh, journeys. Comment.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, when I did the interviews after they submitted their um, chapters, uh, one of the first things that many of them said was, "How thank who thanks somebody for this? You know, thank you for asking me to... <laughs> You know, talk about how hard this was and how we overcame stuff to get there and what changes we made. Thank you, because for me, professionally and personally, there's value in the journey of having just reflected. Because so often in life as professionals, we're plowing on to the next thing, and we're not doing that reflective moment, um, not just patting on the back, but, you know, the quality enrichment, you know, quality added stuff, uh, value added stuff of real reflection.
1: Great stuff. Let's take a break, and uh, in the next segment, let's talk a little bit about institutional change from within. How about that? You got it. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest David Silver- Silverberg from Ashland University, and we're going to talk about um, um, institutional change from from within, more at the level of uh, classes and 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 at the actual stuff of of change. <music>
0: From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645, contact him at deg at 3joy.com, or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go.
2: On iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store,
0: BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's one 472 5790 Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show.
1: And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer the coming revolution in engineering education at whole new It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're back with David Silverberg from Ashland university. We've been talking about his, um, uh, uh, the books that he's edited on, uh, well, uh, one empowerment at the tower in the last segment. And then this final segment, we're going to talk about the book institutional change from within. And, um, uh, uh, how would you distinguish, uh, institutional change from within, uh, uh, from uh, empowerment at the tower, David. Yeah,
2: you know, to me, a couple of key elements, you've mentioned pedagogy a couple times during um, yep. during our, our conversation today, and, and a couple of these chapters, I think, really address that and, and really, I think, reflect part of the purpose or the goal of this text is to help people move in the direction of rethinking or evolving um, how we do what we do as far as teaching yeah. and instruction. Yep. So one of the chapters uh, came out of uh, SUNY, College of Brockport in New York, and that focuses on metacognitive educational leaders and some, some work they've done there on that topic. Yep. And then the other is out of the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, of course, and that focusing on student persistence in STEM and how they've tried to change some of their teaching practices there.
1: Okay. So those sound like uh, two that we should talk about. Where, which one should we talk about first?
2: Oh. Uh, well, let's talk about metacognition because I, I think that's just such a neat topic.
1: Okay, so and
2: metacognition uh, be, being basically thinking about thinking. Yep. And uh, this was uh, initiatives that they took on to really make that more central to what they do is to help leaders, educational leaders, become more self-aware and reflective, uh, centered around critical thinking as a core tenet.
1: Yeah. So, what was it about? Uh, and so the. Um, and there's a fair amount of work, uh, or NSF projects in engineering education on reflection as important to, uh, in the teaching process and, um, and, and, uh, less connected to say professional development in universities, the whole enterprise of, um, executive coaching or leadership coaching is, is a reflective one, but what was it about what, um, Uh, about that chapter that uh, is important to to talk about?
2: Well, I think that uh, the way I think that they look to model that, uh, both in their own leadership style, but then also how they were, you know, they looked at every level, how to model that in their own leadership style, yeah. Uh, how the program would be revised to embed that work in the instruction of the of uh, the of uh, the um, students namely the, the educational leaders but then also how those leaders can help reinforce that or kind of trickle that down to the the, the folks that they coach up in the field you know in, in actual schools so I think that the kind of the holistic nature of it is what I found really intriguing
1: okay so this so it was so uh, and I was uh, I I'll confess I didn't, um, study this in preparation for taking an exam. So, but I did, I was looking through it, but I was trying to understand what it was. And I resonated with the talk of metacognition and reflection and so forth. But I, I was, uh, um, the actually, I was a little unclear as to what it was they actually did with it. So what, what were the results of, um, um, you know, how, well, did, how, did play, how did how did this play how did this play out really in the world?
2: Powerful, and what they yeah. did is they restructured yeah. the assignments to really focus on criti- really drill down into critical thinking as a core, I mean, narrative, if you will, for the a core, a core directive for the assignments. So students weren't just doing assignments. You know, what do you do in this situation at a school if this happens? But they were really looking at what's the professional practice that you would go through, and how would you think critically about this, and really. Um, what, are your own, um, what are your own barriers uh, to thinking uh, critically about this and how you go about breaking through those barriers to create meaningful uh, change in the field? So it was really embedded in the work rather than just uh, allowing, uh, moving forward that old notion of just get the assignment and do it in. Uh, And they actually had some pushback from students around this being pretty tough (laughs) because metacognition, actually applying it to real world situations, is a bit, you know, requires a bit more rigor. Um, So I thought that was pretty interesting stuff. And as far as the topic of, uh, as far as the element of their own uh, growth and their own personal uh, dynamic as change agents, uh, it was pretty interesting to hear that in this book, as compared to, say, uh, the previous one we were talking about leadership, very few of the people in the leadership text talked about their becoming change agents because of professional experiences. Most of them were personal, of a personal nature. Within the institutional change from within text, most of these people, who are now mo- you know talking about teaching and learning, many of them... They were talking about professional experiences as the seeds of change for them, or the inspiration to become change agents, which was fascinating. Uh, Heather Donnelly, the visiting professor of uh, of education there at the College of Brockport, talked about how you know some of her uh, what she would what she would might call you know. Uh, lack of achievement and as an administrator in a, in a charter school, which she wasn't, was not able to inco- accomplish, actually was the source of her becoming, wanting to become a change agent. And uh, Dr. Jeff Lynn over there, department chair, talked about some self-doubt that people may have in becoming doctoral candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like a professional track, but yet that led to, that kind of reference leads him to say, hey we all can become change agents, even for having professional challenges. So I thought that was kind of an interesting and surprising twist.
1: Yeah, no, that's, again, that goes back to what we were talking about before with um, uh, challenges and overcoming challenges or learning, learning from previous challenges as you, as you move ahead. There's also uh, what you were just saying, this element of uh, uh, the importance of practice in the world. Um, as opposed to, um, so there's thinking about thinking and critical reflection, but there's also kind of di- doing and iterating um, and and uh, and and trying theory against the world. Which, to be honest, uh, modern education hasn't been much much about practice. In fact, uh, uh, many liberal arts schools eschew practice and think you know that the practice in the world is is uh, somehow beneath the the pure enterprise of a liberal education comment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think a good example, and I know that just in the time we have here, you asked about two examples. I think this is a natural shift over to okay. what the initiative was at University of Pittsburgh on focusing on student persistence in the STEM fields. That yeah. was very much along those lines, which is, hey, let's make this, let's move this from a course where people are, you know, passing science courses or not, to whether they're actually doing science. And what they found was... these lab courses where students were being scientists, you know, of course in a studenting environment, but were doing yeah. science, actually not only inspired them more than just sitting in a quote unquote weed out course, but also gave them the tools to do real, meaningful research and really uh, have the confidence and the skills to stay in STEM fields. So this was. Of course, they were spurred on there by and supported by a grant, uh, and that's nice. But, you know, grant can't be everything. There's got to be some real value there, and that's something that they found uh, is that it was a very meaningful program. It continues to be, continues to grow, and is a real application of real learning and not just theory.
1: Yeah, Don, back in uh, the early 80s, Don Shun had this nice distinction between um, the the practice as applying theory he called it um, uh, technical rationality that we have this these theories like you you called out science so we have theories in biology uh, or we have theories in um, physics and the idea of practice is merely to apply those in the world and that's easy that that's for some lesser form of life than a than a pure scientist to do. And then, but he said, you know, when you actually watch practitioners in the world, they're constantly engaging in what he called, he had nice words, uh, conversation with the situation was one thing he called it. He called it reflection in action. There's that R word again, uh, or conversation in action. And that, practice is fundamentally the epistemology of practice is fundamentally different than what we think it is and we're and part of what's wrong with the universities is they don't acknowledge other than sort of technical rationality is the way in. That I'm sort of presenting Shun's views, but I'm um guess I'm asking how that connects with the things that you saw in the STEM study.
2: Oh yeah, certainly. What they did was they actually, um, as I said, redesigned these courses so that students were doing actually doing science at a much earlier stage and were applauded for that, and they brought in graduate students and so forth to support that. So they, uh, the numbers keep growing in that program. I, I hope to go out there soon to visit it. And um, uh, one of the things that they talked about there that I think was also really interesting was uh, the kind of the role modeling. I mean, these were three mm. women who led this program. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Nancy Kaufman, Assistant Director of Undergraduate Research. Dr. Sarah Grubb visiting a lab. Just about a minute left. And Dr. Marcy, Marcy Warner is a lab instructor there as well. And one of the things that Sarah talked about was the positive role model of, of being a female scientist for young female aspiring scientists. Talk yeah. about making it real, you know. Yeah. And cool. uh, so this this is taking it way beyond theory and making it into real practical stuff that I think is making inspirational change there.
1: Yeah. Well, and I wish we had more time. We, we need to wrap up. I, I'd like uh, to uh, give you a moment so that you can let people know how they can find out more about your work, uh, an email address or URL. How can how can people find out about your stuff?
2: Sure, sure, well, they can just contact me by email. Uh, that's easy. Uh, it's d as in david d silver b so silver like the metal, B as in boy d silver b at ashland.edu, a s h l a n d dot edu great.
1: thanks for uh, being with us on the show, David. The books are, I think, are an important contribution, and people should go out and get them.
2: Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Special thanks to our guest, David Silverberg, and Ashland University and the Toledo Center. Help transform higher education. Help unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.